celebrating America's freedom and the tough conversations about its past. I think America has a lot of problems from the past. And you know, you build a house on a foundation, if the foundation's kind of bad, it's gonna have problems as you put the house on top of it. On this 4th of July, we're looking at the state of race relations in America. I'm Todd Zwillick, and this is The Takeaway. All this hour, stories from our Uncomfortable Truth series. We go to Minneapolis, Alaska, and New York. Families only wanted Caucasian American children. Being Puerto Rican was not a very good identity. Plus, how two women with the exact same name found each other and had a racial awakening. The ticket that she got for walking in that park at 10 p.m., I wouldn't have gotten that ticket as a white person in a low-crime neighborhood. Call us at 877-8MY-TAKE. You can tweet us at The Takeaway. We'll have more right after these headlines. This is The Takeaway. I'm Todd Zwillick. Happy 4th of July, and thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you're headed to a barbecue today or the beach and definitely to some fireworks tonight. Americans everywhere are getting a day off, some time to relax, and maybe spending a little bit of time thinking about what it means to be American. Patriotism means a lot of different things to different people, but it can be really easy to forget sometimes. We're all in this together. The Union isn't perfect, and the founders knew it. It's the first thought in the Constitution right after we the people. And there's plenty of anxiety in America that our common values are somehow changing for the worse or worse still, disappearing. If so, there's another thing that this country gives us, the unfailing chance to renew, to keep the national experiment going, to get the Union more perfect. As we celebrate the 4th, we're asking you what we still need to do to become that more perfect union. This is Betsy calling from Miami. Embrace that we are a nation of immigrants, different in color, religious beliefs, that we all come in different shapes and sizes, and that the true strength of this country is that we continue to work as Americans, not us against them. Happy 4th, everyone. This is John from Tampa, Florida. We, the people, have to change, grow become responsible for more than just ourselves. This is Mark Dressler from San Juan Capistrano, California. We need to depolarize our political environment by electing representatives who understand the art of negotiation and compromise and who care more about our nation and its citizens than adhering to partisan lines. This is Sarah from Michigan. We need to address our dark past so we can truly heal. This nation was built on the backs of slaves and colonization of a nation that never belonged to us in the first place. This is Christine Sumption. I'm calling from Seattle, Washington. As a nation and as individuals, we need to develop our practice of empathy. That is, asking questions, listening to others, seeing the world through other people's eyes, and then taking action to help someone beside ourselves. You can call us at 8778-MY-TAKE to weigh in. This hour, we'll talk about how we can work more closely together as Americans to hear each other, to work through differences, and hopefully understand one another. Our former president was fond at times of talking about this. We cannot solve the challenges of our time unless we solve them together, unless we perfect our union by understanding that we may have different stories, but we hold common hopes that we may not look the same and may not have come from the same place, but we all want to move in the same direction towards a better future for our children and our grandchildren. 
Barack Obama's election in 2008 had lots of Americans hoping that our racial wounds had been healed, that the country somehow had achieved post-racial status. But there are still deep divides in America. You can see it in confrontations between police and people of color, in immigration detention centers, in shrinking factory towns, and in rural America. This work, it turns out, is far from done. So today on our special holiday show, we're highlighting tough conversations from our Uncomfortable Truth series. And we begin today with Raniqua Allen. She's author of the upcoming book, It Was All a Dream, Black Millennials, Mobility and Migration in the 21st Century. She's also a producer with WNYC's United States of Anxiety podcast. Raniqua remembers the hope in the wake of President Obama's election that the country had moved beyond race. It's a hope, she says, might have done more harm than good. I think I was feeling very frustrated, particularly with a group of friends that I've known for decades that thought that, you know, having a black man in the White House made race kind of go away. And it didn't for me. I was seeing young boys like Trayvon, you know, getting gunned down and and getting killed every day. There was the Gina Six. There were all these things that were happening where I felt race was still very relevant, very prevalent racism in my life and realized how frustrated I was over the conversations we weren't having about race. And I think that we still aren't having today. So what's missing? I think nuance is a big thing that's missing. You see a certain type of black person that's plugged into a conversation. Sometimes they look like me. Like, you know, I have degrees. I kind of work in this media environment. I live in a blue state. Um, I'm college educated. I own my own home. I speak a certain way. I even look a certain way. And, you know, a lot of times people on the streets, my cousins, uh, people who may not look the same way, who may not watch the same type of television, who may not have stepped into college, their stories are important too. And I don't think media always, you know, they don't always tell their stories or they're victims or they come into the conversation when when they want to talk about the quote-unquote like lower class people. There's a respectability politics um, even within the media that we kind of adhere to and that I could even be guilty of sometimes as well. So I think that that's not the same when you cover white America, even though somehow the media (laughs) thinks that they've like, you know, missed the story on the white working class um, in in rural America and Appalachia and and now kind of are scrambling to to figure out what happened there. I think when it comes to white folks in America, you have a full experience of them. You have a fuller understanding of them. You don't see one type of person. We're not all Oprah or or Gail or, you know, Olivia Pope. There's there's a, a depth and a breadth of the black experience and a diversity of it that is, is simply just lacking and simply just not understood. I think you're right. You know, I don't remember another time when the media or anyone else, frankly, scrambled to the cities or to the South or to anyone else to really find the black story that they had been missing the way everyone scrambled to the middle of the country, and rightly so, to cover West Virginia and these places. They should be covering it. I don't remember that ever happening for people to discover what black folks are really thinking. Yeah, absolutely not. And particularly black folks, you know, that kind of aren't on our radar. I mean, I'm very interested at Donald Trump um, when he was running for president saying that, you know, black people are living in hell. I say it again. What do you have to lose? Look, what do you have to lose? You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no jobs. 
58% of your youth is unemployed. What the hell do you have to lose? And everyone kind of picked up that headline, and it was like a hot, you know, a hot topic for a little bit. But I wanted to know what that meant. Like, what do our neighborhoods look like? I mean, I know I live in, I actually live in suburban New Jersey. I live in a segregated neighborhood. I don't have white neighbors next to me. And and this is a middle-class neighborhood um, that I live in. You know, my experience and a lot more of my friends are largely segregated. They, they don't interact necessarily. Maybe at work they interact with people of color and other black people. But I think we really have to understand how much of our lives are, are really compartmentalized, are really segregated. And I do think there's a lack of understanding. And I'll just use myself as an example in thinking about, you know, Donald Trump's in hell comment. I realize I don't have much of an interaction with lower income African-Americans, people who haven't finished college. In my own circle, even among, you know, African-Americans, we've all been to college. We all kind of have these same type of jobs. So, you know, maybe there is a sect living in hell. I just I don't know it as well. I don't see it as well. And I think that's kind of what I'm talking about is lacking when we have these conversations where it's usually a bunch of you know, PhDs, I'm working on a PhD. So like, I get it. I get the value in that. But there needs to be a more inclusive uh, representation of black life in America that we're understanding, that we're understanding why, you know, these young kids in Chicago may be, you know, acting up and frustrated. And I think it needs to be done not just on this kind of like top down level, but from like, you know, we need to really understand from the bottom up. I want to talk about how black millennials themselves do these conversations, because those are the interviews that you've been doing Mm -hmm. for your book. You know, in Reniqua, it occurred to me that if you're a black millennial, you may have voted for the very first time when Barack Obama was running for president. And then your next electoral experience, 2016, with the campaign of President Trump and some troubling rhetoric and strategies around race and ethnicity, it's a really strange and narrow window to have viewed politics, at least for the last decade, bookended on one end with Barack Obama and on the other end with this backlash and the victory of Donald Trump. How do the black millennials that you talk to digest that and react to it? Half of the group is just devastated and and doesn't know what to think is next. And the other half, they're like, you know what? America's never been for us. This has always been a messed up country and we were duped by, you know, this notion, this first black president. But this is what America always is. And you know what? We shouldn't have expected any more from our country. And that's hard for me to hear from a young 20-year-old person. I'm a person who majored in, you know, political science. I lived in Washington, D.C. I got my start in journalism in Washington, D.C. You know, I too kind of had hope for this country. And it's a really sad space to be in when I hear young black people telling me, you know, you need to work twice as hard, that America doesn't care about us, that the American dream isn't for us. And I think people are truly shocked and truly frustrated. And I should also say truly scared. I mean, they're wondering what Jeff Sessions is doing. They're wondering if they're even going to be alive um, if, you know, police confront them. And it's a really sad and frustrating place to be in America now. That pessimism and that fear is certainly understandable. And then at the same time, Reniqua, here's the obvious point. This is still the country that struggled through civil rights, then turned around 50 years later and elected Obama. It still is that place. 
even if all of that pessimism is justified. Absolutely. And that's the kind of wonderful thing, I think, about the Black experience overall in America. They take all that. We understand that. We understand all that pain and tragedy and frustration and pessimism. And still, I think we're a largely optimistic people, even these young Black millennials. There is an optimism there. There is a, we just have to find a way to disrupt the system. We have to push back. We have to find our own way because the system isn't made for us, but we're going to do it and we're just going to find new avenues to do it. We're going to be innovative. We're going to be creative. We're going to use this technology that's out there like social media to get our voices heard. So that I think is actually a positive place. And I think that that's where maybe the conversation can continue. And I hope it does continue. And I hope it actually is able to reach out to a larger audience because that's valuable and and that hope and it's amazing and it's beautiful and I want to see more of that. Well, I'm glad that you're having that conversation, Reniqua Allen, and I'm especially glad that you're having it with us. So thank you. Thank you. Reniqua Allen is author of the upcoming book, It Was All a Dream, Black Millennials, Mobility and Migration in the 21st Century. And you've been telling us what you think still needs to be done to make America a more perfect union. In order to have our more perfect union, we need less partisanship and more willingness to talk together and make compromise. And we also need especially less partisanship expressed through super PACs and dark money. This is Liza Hagerman from Lafayette, Indiana. To become a more perfect union, I think we need our congressional districts to be redrawn, to be representative of the people. We need to get money out of politics. We need the media to focus on issues and facts rather than sensationalism. And we need to learn how to communicate with each other constructively again. You can call us at 8778-MY-TAKE, or you can always join the conversation on The Takeaway's Facebook page. Support for The Takeaway comes from the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. The Takeaway's resilience reporting is supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. For more, go to rockfound.org. Welcome back to The Takeaway. It's Todd Zwillick with you today. And all this hour, we're featuring pieces of our conversation series called Uncomfortable Truths, Confronting Racism in America. We go now to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we meet Jessica Chirac. Jessica emailed us with a story about her good friend, Tiffany Wilson-Worsley. Jessica is white and Tiffany is black. And a few years ago, Jessica asked Tiffany, who she knew from a previous job, to meet her at a local coffee shop in northern Minneapolis. It's a predominantly black part of the city. Jessica wanted to leap over some frustrating barriers that keep people of different races in different worlds in this country. And Jessica had questions. Tiffany was very open and she told me, you know, I come from this predominantly black neighborhood and I have parents who don't like white people. And somehow I felt upset that her parents wouldn't like white people. And it made me feel a little defensive. How could they not like white people? But, you know, I guess I keep thinking of this word tracks, like we're on different tracks. We live in different neighborhoods. We work at different places. We have different people for bosses um, and we have different friend groups. And so I guess I felt like racially a little defensive but it was also the start of feeling really curious about about her life. When I initially said that, and which is still true, 
I did let her know that when my parents refer to white people, they still use the other word. <laughs> the C word? <laughs> the C word that I cannot even say in the grocery store anymore <laughs> because it's so jaded. <laughs> Crackers. There it is. Yeah. So my parents still use that to refer to white people. And that's because the historical context is my mother was raised on the farm majority of her life doing all of those ugly things, you know, to please the servants and, you know, the maids and things like that. And so although we're in 2017 and we live an entirely different lifestyle now, I think those memories are still resonate in my parents' mind. So when they say, hey, look at those crackers over there, they're not saying, oh, I hate them, but it's just that's them. They have no dealings with us. And that's a reality to me that I try to deal with even with my parents and some of my friends. And I think that's the kind of the temperament that I also lead with this work is that we understand that certain ideologies still persist and consist in this day and time. And it's still live and real. Mm -hmm. And I would say uh, as someone who grew up with family who said things about people who weren't white without knowing anybody who wasn't white, that there's an ideology that's really deep-seated yep. and that they're not aware of it. They just know they don't like certain people. And it's shocking that people would say those things, think those things without having any direct experience. We went to a conference at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and it was the National Center on Difficult Dialogues conference. And we talked about living room conversations and we were able to simulate a conversation on race with a really diverse group of people. And we had a great time. But it was also hard to um, be in a room of people who mostly weren't white and talk about having these cross-racial dialogues and feel challenged. What an example of a time where it got a little weird for me, but then I understood what other people's experiences must be like was when... I was talking about something, but the black women in the room looked at Tiffany and addressed Tiffany for follow-up questions. They didn't necessarily address me. That's probably the experience of a lot of people of color in America every day. After that experience, we were going to dinner that night. Mm -hmm. And as we were walking in the door, you said um, you needed a break. You need to go for a walk. And it was in that moment I thought of the pressure that you were or had experienced, and you needed to walk it off. And I thought to myself, I don't get that opportunity to do that. Mm. I can't, because this is my reality. And so that has been one thing that I've been thinking about, but never intentionally like got into until yeah. now. I just didn't think me and white women had a lot in common. I think because I put them all in this one bucket of passive women who didn't have much to say and or contribute, outside of beauty and hair. And when I think of white women, it's just beauty. And I don't know if that's because that's how society lifts them, you know, because they're always the models or look at what she has on or, you know, she's size four, the long hair, the straight long hair, because mine is not straight. So, of course, I always gravitate to those things that are obviously much more different than us. So as I began to do the living room conversations, I began to see her nose. I began to see the color of her hair which meant I began to listen when she talked. So when she talked about her relationships, when she talked about her beautiful marriage and her beautiful daughter, I began to see my auntie and my cousins, when they talk about their beautiful marriages and their children, 
also her work. I already thought Jessica was a strong woman. So to hear her talk about her work and, and how she move around in her work, it was just like, she is just like me. Now, I can honestly say I don't know that I hold that for still all white women. I need more white women friends. <laughs> but for Jessica, I think she was a little bit more easier for me to see because I had already pegged her as someone who was strong and hardworking and she cared about her parents. And obviously those things are big for me and I don't know why, but they are. So can I bring up the hair thing? <laughs> okay, oh, yeah. You mentioned mm-hmm. it, the long straight hair. Yep. So I, I learned a lot of things and these, they might seem silly, but they, they weren't silly to me. Um, I learned that black women sometimes, if they get their hair done for a particular kind of event, they might sleep sitting up in a chair because they don't want to ruin their hair because it's important that it looks good the next day. Tiffany might, I mean, has a lot of familiarity with that, but I didn't know that. And it seems like a small detail of life, but it lets you know that we are having really different experiences in daily details of how we go about our lives. And it was really surprising to me that there were small things like that that I didn't know, like how to care for your hair, that every black woman is going to know, but most white women will not know. I didn't know that black women wore wigs. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. And then I went to Tiffany's apartment, and she had wigs at her house. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know white women who have wigs. But now I, you know, I, I know that small detail, but it helps me understand life just a teeny bit more from somebody else's perspective. And I think about other white women who are going to go through their lives having only white women friends and not knowing at all what it's like for someone who's not white to just get around in the world to be in the world and I think that is too bad for them. That's Jessica Chirac and Tiffany Wilson-Worsley. Now they're both participating in Living Room Conversations, a guided conversation project about helping people connect with others with differing perspectives. This is The Takeaway. I'm Todd Zwillick. A few weeks back, Allison Fornes emailed us. She wanted to share a conversation that she always wanted to have with her mother, Julia. In 1956, at just six years old, Julia was sent from Puerto Rico to an orphanage in Connecticut. Because of racial tensions, Julia was discouraged from carrying on her traditions from back home to be a more desirable adoptee for a family in Connecticut. She spent a lot of her life trying to pass as anything but Puerto Rican. I think that started when I first came from Puerto Rico and uh, being a ward of the state for all my life, I used to want to have a a nice family to be a part of growing up, but it didn't happen. And I was told the reason for that from the uh, social workers in the, the state of Connecticut, they said that it was because I was Puerto Rican. Families only wanted white, you know, Caucasian American children. From that point on, uh, my friends, my Puerto Rican friends and myself, we all decided being Puerto Rican was not a very good identity to go with. So we all tried to fit in otherwise by saying that we're 
either Italian, anything other than Puerto Rican. At the time, the racism was really pretty bad. And right up to when I went back to school and college, uh, I saw I had the same problems, saying that I was Puerto Rican. Also, when I got married, my husband said, you know, don't tell anybody you're Puerto Rican. Mm. So I kept it under wraps. Yeah. I, you know, it was obviously never a secret to me. That's why I think it came as such a surprise when I realized that. And I think at the time, I wondered, were you trying to be white? I wasn't, actually. Um, just anything other than being Puerto Rican, I don't think I would say uh, I'm trying to be white. No, no, I don't think that ever, ever. <laughs> I just didn't want anyone to know I was Puerto Rican, that's all. For instance, when I was living in Queens, um, I went to look at an apartment, and the, the family went all on and counted off all the different ethnic groups that they didn't want to rent to. But because I looked like them, they rented to me. Mm-hmm. I did not say, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, because I, I knew that I, was, uh, I would not be able to rent their apartment. Having my own children, you being a grandparent now, I think about what it was like for you to be a little girl, to sort of come up with all of these projections, the contrast between what your life was like when you were just a little girl born and raised in Puerto Rico for the short time that you were there, and then coming over here as a young as a young girl. And so I think I'm curious about how what was it like for you trying to find your true self when you were had all these projections about coming at you about, what you were because you were Puerto Rican? At first, I was extremely happy. When I, I remember, you know, going into the orphanage and just all smiles and, you know, I only spoke Spanish and, um, and I made friends with a couple of other Puerto Rican girls that had also just come from Puerto Rico. And I remember how I was able to speak Spanish to them and I was really happy. But then that was short-lived because the nuns said, no, you're not allowed to speak your native language. You cannot do that. So every time we would, you know, (laughs) we would be in a little group talking in our our own native language, and if we got caught, we'd be severely, you know, really punished by smacking our hand with a paddle if we were caught talking Spanish. Coming up, Julia talks about the negative effect the orphanage had on her Puerto Rican identity and what it took for that to change. We return now to the conversation with Allison Fornes talking with her mother, Julia, about her closeted identity as a Puerto Rican. So um, at first, I had no problem. I mean, I just loved who I was. And then after, you know, all the signs, there used to be signs that was in Hartford, and and it was something about speaking English only, you know. And I remember people, you know, yelling to go back to Puerto Rico because there was a lot of us coming uh, to the mainland at that time. So, you know, being teased and ugh, it was just a pretty nasty time as, as a child. So um, I learned 
by that experience, it wasn't a good thing to be Puerto Rican at that time, anyway. The more I dealt with that kind of racism, the more I, I felt, yeah, my identity of self, my self-identity was just destroyed. I didn't feel very good about myself, and that lasted forever. Mm. Um, actually, the you know, this is kind of funny, because um, it wasn't until Jennifer Lopez, <laughs> mm. when she became so popular, that's when mm. I realized, hey, I'm Puerto Rican too. This is a good mm. thing, you know, and I was able to come out and say who I am. I am from the Caribbean. I am Puerto Rican. I am who I am, you know. Mm. Now I am very proud of who I am. But it took me a long, long time. Allison, you, you went back a couple of times. You went back with mm-hmm. um, your husband and your uh, and and Radcliffe. And I think each time, part of what I'm doing is can I sort of warming up to the place and finding the ways in which, you know, I can make it my own as well. I was with some college friends, and we went to Marikao, which is the village in which you were born and raised. And I was shocked <laughs> to discover, like, there was a there was this park or some kind of park-like thing, and had a little had this this structure that said. Uh, that had the Fornes name on it, and and even there was a coffee harvest festival, and um, it was beautiful. There was great music and dancing, and really thick black coffee being served. And at some point in the in the middle of a, uh, there was an announcement calling for, uh, in Spanish, calling for somebody with a Fornes last name. <laughs> and I honestly, there was something. It was actually almost too much for me. I was my friends tried to encourage me, and I, at the time I felt. I, you know, it was kind of a missed opportunity. I regret a little bit, but I could feel both the the sort of this intensity of what it meant to be in this place that was home, an, an ancestral home, and also feel like oh, I'm not sure that I could be welcome or connected. Like, how do I how do I reach into that space? Yeah, I don't think I've said that before. <laughs> I still haven't gone back yet. <laughs> but then uh, I have been able to get in touch with my uh, my family, my biological family in Puerto Rico. Everybody's in Puerto Rico except for my cousin. And it's so, it feels so good to know that, you know, my cousins, they accept me quite warmly, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as if I'd never left the family. Mm. And it really makes me feel so good. And because of that, I really embrace my uh, nationality. That was Allison Fornes, an education consultant based in Salem, Massachusetts. She was talking there with her mother, Julia Fornes. And if you want to take part in our Uncomfortable Truth series, head to thetakeaway.org slash truths. Tell us who you'd like to have a conversation about race with. Could be a family member, could be a friend or a coworker. Coming up next, we head to Anchorage, Alaska, and listen in on part of a monthly dialogue series called Community in Unity. Stay with us. The Takeaway is supported by Staples. Staples offers copy and print services for businesses, including color copies, presentations, and promotional products. More at Staples stores or at staples.com. Staples, it's pro time. 
Anchorage, Alaska has a large Alaskan native and immigrant population. More than 90 languages are spoken in its public schools, and more than half the students identify as people of color. Perceptions on race in Anchorage vary widely. Some black people think racial conflicts aren't as pervasive there as they are in the lower 48. But many Alaskan natives would disagree with that when they point to high rates of native people in prisons or in foster care. Alaska Public Media has a monthly dialogue series called Community in Unity, and they took on race and identity last November right after the 2016 election. Ann Hillman moderated the discussions along with a couple of co-moderators. She's an urban affairs reporter for Alaska Public Media. We're highlighting two topics today. The first was raised by Kokai Nasakere, a black man who grew up in Anchorage. He wanted to know what white people learned about race from the anti-segregation movements of the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Since I know I grew up with my parents having their childhood experience being the civil rights movement and hearing the stories of how to interact with a white woman on the street corner without getting lynched, how to interact with the police without getting lynched, how to walk into a classroom and see nobody reflected that looks like me and not get lynched. What did you get from the civil rights movement that we're not talking about from the other side? Because I know exactly what black people got. Hi, my name is Marge. And despite the fact that I was born in the, in the mid-60s, I didn't hear anything. I heard silence. I lived in completely white community and I heard nothing until I went to a chosen community, went to college in a place with people that didn't all look like me. And then, and then I learned about it. Uh, my name's Tim. Um, a lot of the time I hear like my white friends tell me that it happened a long time ago and just let it go and act like it's nothing. And I think it's almost like a child where if you abuse it as a kid and then it grows up, it's still going to have problems as an adult. You can't just say that happened when you were five that someone abused you. Just grow up and let it go. I think America has a lot of problems from the past. And, you know, you build a house on a foundation. If the foundation was kind of bad, it's going to have problems as you put the house on top of it. Um, so my name is Anthony. As a white male, I think part of the reason I like haven't had the discussions about race is because I've sort of operated in the privilege where I can look away on issues such as race. Like that's not something I have to talk about. And going back to the point, as sort of just like, how are these um, white people responding to the civil rights movement and how they're taught? It's because we have this privilege, we're allowed to look away from sort of the horrible things done by other members of our own race. And when you say, how can these people still lead us? It's because they have the privilege to be able to look away and sort of be like, those events are past. But because I am belong to this category, I can sort of continue forward. We don't have to look backwards because we have the privilege of not looking backwards. My mother, all of my people are from Southeast uh, Alabama. That's why I live in Alaska. <laughs> I love them, but mm, no, 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 no. They're not Facebook friends either. But my grandfather was a lovely man who was a sheriff in Alabama. And my mother who grew up in the 50s and 60s always said, she'll watch a show and she'll see something on a march or a lynching and she'll go, I never saw that kind of stuff. And I went, you were the sheriff's kid. Now, first of all, you know that was happening. He may have been at them. I love granddaddy, but he may have been at them. And of course he kept you away from it. You know, we're the only ones really allowed to, to be that willful about it and, and to pretend like it didn't happen. Another conversation in the Community in Unity series hit on racism against Alaska Natives. 
Victoria Hike-Steer talked about her own experience. I'm in Upa. People don't always realize that, especially when they see my eyes. They're not brown. My experience living here is really, really different in that I encounter racism in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's just the shock that I'm actually intelligent. And people were really angry that this native kid was incredibly smart and didn't give it what they thought. (laughs) And the other thing is, I went to law school not because I wanted to, but my grandmother, she asked me to go. And I said, why? And she said, I was born free, but I'm not going to die free. I want to know why. What happened to us? How did we lose everything? We fought no war. We killed no one. My experiences with white people have been fascinating. My father's family was lovely to me. But white people, I can only handle so many as friends at a time because you get tired of explaining. I'm glad you're having this conversation, but what you fail to realize is we never asked to be American. We never volunteered our land And ANCSA wasn't a settlement, it was imposed. Are we very welcome here? No. No. My father literally asked my brother and I at a Thanksgiving dinner why we both chose to be Inupak when we could pass and our lives would be so much easier. Do you know how painful that is to hear your father say that to you? My brother kicked me under the table, and I told my father we found a world that was so beautiful, we couldn't be anything else. We come from people who dreamed, and they didn't need to diminish someone else's soul to be human. Moderator April Stahl is Native American, and she acknowledged earlier in the discussion that she can also pass as white. And she had this to say about unfair treatment of Native people. You bring up um, a lot of the stuff that we don't want to talk about. And in fact, I was just having a discussion earlier today. Um, A training I did all day on Monday was teaching foster parents about the importance of culture and talking about the history of Alaska and talking about the BIA and the boarding schools and what happened and why some folks might not understand how someone could say, you know, why would you be when you could pass? it became survival at one point for folks who could pass to do so because native people across the country um, were rounded up and put in boarding schools. And then the other thing that we don't talk about either, you guys, um, some of you might know, but when we talk about World War II and we talk about the Japanese internment, um, the Aleut people were interned, Yunungan people were interned. And so I think that's why these conversations are so important because it's not documented in a lot of places. Navigating issues of race and identity in Alaska. Special thanks to Ann Hillman from Alaska Public Media for moderating this discussion. And now a story of two women with the same name 
and very different experiences. Back in April, John Hockenberry sat down with these two women who once had nothing in common, nothing except they both were named Lisa Davis and they both had the same birthday. One Lisa kept getting traffic citations she didn't earn, and after two decades, she set out to solve the mystery. I was going to go try to find all the Lisa Davises, so I made a map for myself, and the closest one was Brownsville. So I went that first day, and... Very different neighborhood in Brooklyn. Very different neighborhood. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's it's 1% white, and it's a lot of projects, mm-hmm. and but a lot of single-family homes, too. Yeah. And um, I didn't know what to, I was going to say or I- exactly what I was doing there. And I heard the commotion. I heard a little bit in the hallways, but you, you just don't tend to. You, you mind your business in the projects. And then this first tap, I was like, shh, it's Jehovah Witnesses. Just So then she came and knocked with a little force, like boom, boom, boom. And I'm looking at my best friend. I'm like, probably got the wrong apartment. Let me just see what's going on. So I'm like, hello. And she was just starting to tell a story. Like, this may sound funny or awkward, but I'm Lisa, and I'm searching for Lisa. And then I opened it, <laughs> and, um, and it just started from there. She was like, you know, I've been searching for a Lisa Savoy Davis, and, you know, have you had any issues, or, you know, your name Lisa Davis? And I was like, yes, I know a Lisa Celine. And she was like, that's me! And we just started hugging, and I just hugged her. I guess, like, oh, my God! Which is, you know, not, I, I, I wasn't <laughs> sure what was going to happen, but definitely that was not my first thought about it. I'm going to go knock on this lady's door and say I want to talk to you about being Lisa Davis and get a and get hugged. So that was <laughs> awesome. Lisa Sellen, a white writer in Brooklyn, finds Lisa Savoy Davis, an African-American personal trainer also in Brooklyn. These two women close the door on a mystery and they forge a friendship that has opened up much more. The ticket that she got that that led to the warrant, the ticket for walking in that park at 10 p.m., I wouldn't have gotten that ticket if I went into Prospect Park. I, I don't think as a white person in a neighborhood, a low crime neighborhood. Right. And and so what the story is about is that there was this mix up and, and this inconvenience for me, but it was really the result of racial profiling. That's ultimately what happens. Right. You know, this story is, is all about kind of what constitutes our identity and what isn't our identity. Um, it's also about just how you can connect with someone so intensely, right. um, you know, for reasons that you'd never think of. You know, we're constantly talking in America about how to how to cross these lines, how to get out of these bubbles. You know, well, I think I was telling her that um, it is a big difference in the city for me, being from the South and New York City. I had a little more Caucasian friends, mixed friends in the South, but when I got to New York City, I noticed a distance from us. Um, the the connection they wouldn't allow us in. I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know in my community it was hard to meet someone of another race, I mean, well, of Caucasian race, and be able to say we're friends. You would it would have to be um, you have to definitely step out of Brownsville. So it was different, and it was exciting to finally say, okay, so this is a New Yorker who's a Caucasian that I can actually see what's the difference and how her experience is from my experience. So, what kinds of things like that did you learn? Well, I think both of us very much lament the lack of diversity in our neighborhoods and lives. And I remember that being a thing that that Lisa said early on of like, I'm so excited to have a white friend in New York because she had lots of white friends in North Carolina. Like, where where are the the white white people? people? I was like, "Uh, and we're over in Park Slope being like, where are all the African-American people? To me, this is also about this is an issue of affordable housing. 
And I, I live in my neighborhood because it was super cheap when I moved there. And as it's gotten more expensive, you know, every, everything, it's, it's the story of gentrification, but really we're, a lot, we're grouped the way we are because of the price of housing. One of the things that's wrong in America is that, you know, whites don't see racism. Right. And they also don't see privilege. Right. Can you see the extent to which racism has held you back? And mm -hmm. can you see the extent to which privilege has given you a real boost that it's determined certain aspects of your lives? I do feel very aware of my privilege, and I, I, I feel it just when I go into my favorite store in Park Slope. When I walk out, you know, they have to check your bag and your receipt, and they hardly ever do. And I often think, like, I'm, I'm getting, I am above suspicion just because of the color of my skin. But I think what we know about empathy is that it's really all about exposure. So the white people who don't understand their privilege or don't want to admit it just might not be having enough contact with people from other walks of life to show them just how lucky they are. There's times when I'm with Lisa, when we talk about it, I can see we're totally different people. Our attitudes, our belief systems, and it's like I'm in awe with this. But then I see that we all have that side where we, we certain things we don't like about ourselves. And I see that from her, and but she shows that side a lot, like, oh, I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I, and she has this viewpoint constantly. But then me, I'm always like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, how how could you not like this side? How dare you? How how do you not? One of us been has a much higher self-esteem than the other. And, but here it is, and, and I do have a high self-esteem, but it's not because I was, I would say that the life that I came from, we've had so much of these struggles that if I had to, to look at then and look at now, I love where I'm at. I've been through so much in life that to get to where I'm at, it's awesome for me. I will not allow anything to tear that down. And because it was a hard struggle to get here. And then when I see you and I'm like, was your struggle like mine? How could things be so just as simple as I don't like or I hate? She has this privilege and in my head I'm thinking, she doesn't have a right to feel like nothing is going her way because Things happen your way so easily for you, you know. I believe I'm being accused of being a no. whiner right now, but <laughs> but it's not. I this is, accused this of is totally amazing. But I'm this just... is it's not to take, you know. But it yeah. this is where I'm taken away from it, and this is my um, brutally honesty from what I've been learning from you, and it's a, an awareness, and I realize like you're human too. So just because you have this privilege doesn't mean, you know, maybe you you are aware but don't know how to go through life with it. And for us not having this privilege, we have to struggle and fight for this stuff. We have to dig deep to create this resilience. So when things happen to us on the negative side, it's like nothing off. It's like, okay, we just got to knock this down and keep moving. Yeah. And with you, it's like, the world is over. And I'm looking at her like, no, the world is not over. I did come with built-in advantages. And it is true that she is a thousand times more positive and resilient than I am. And that is okay because I can learn from her to, to be more like that. This was the best accident that happened. Yes. I mean, this is one of the best accidents I've ever heard about. <laughs> it is. Yeah? Definitely. So what's the lesson from the two leases? It, it was an eye-opener for me to not even, to assume that because you're privileged that um, life is not a struggle for you. You still are human and you have your flaws and your doubts in life. 
I mean, uh, one takeaway is how rewarding it is to be friends with someone from a different walk of life, and especially someone from who's just like a couple neighborhoods away, right. and that that connection is is powerful and meaningful, and there should be op- more opportunities to have these connections without you know Order. eighteen years of That's, legal troubles. Yeah, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Two Huggers from Brooklyn. <laughs> That's the title of the book. Thanks so much, guys. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Thank you for having us. John Hockenberry there in conversation with Lisa Savoy Davis, an African-American personal trainer in Brooklyn, and Lisa Sellen Davis, a white writer in Brooklyn. They're both 45. If you want to take part in our series, well, we'd love to hear from you. Visit thetakeaway.org slash truths. Tell us how you could bridge racial divides in your world by having a conversation. It could be a family member or a friend or a coworker. We'll review your submission, and if we select your story, we'll set everything up to record your conversation. Again, visit us at thetakeaway.org slash truths to sign up. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great fourth. I'm Todd Zwillick, and this is The Takeaway. PRI Public Radio International.